If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. As climate change starts to bite in Latin America, some farmers will be forced to change the crops they grow, or how they grow them. Some will give up and head north. We look at the risks ahead and the policies that would help to navigate them. And you've probably worked with one. They get the job done, but they're just not pleasant people. We examine the phenomenon of talented jerks and find that actually it would be a mistake to ban them from the workplace altogether. But first... The International Monetary Fund, one of the world's foremost economic institutions, set out its predictions for the global economy earlier this week. The global economy remains on track for a gradual recovery from the pandemic and Russia's war on Ukraine. China's reopened economy is rebounding strongly. Supply chain disruptions are unwinding, while the dislocations to energy and food markets caused by the war are receding. Inflation, the IMF said, will start to come under control, slowly. Growth will be weak in rich countries, but signs of recession appear to be waning. The IMF is trusted, relied on the world over, as a key economic forecaster. But in its other, more important role, it's struggling. In related news, the IMF has agreed to provide Egypt with emergency aid. This fund is offering a $3 billion loan. It is to help the nation... For years, the IMF has been the lender of last resort. The IMF has ended two years of speculation and agreed to another bailout for Greece. The fund says it has approved in principle... It's lent money to the world's most indebted and most distressed economies. But recently, it's been struggling to get money out the door. Now it's sitting on a whole mountain range of cash, over a trillion dollars that it just isn't putting to use. For decades, America dominated how the world lent to poor countries. Carrion Richmond-Jones writes about finance and economics for The Economist. There's this idea of something called the Paris Club, and the Paris Club was a set of Western countries who lent to poor countries and then had an agreement on how they would bail them out when things went bad. China isn't part of the Paris Club, but it's lent a lot of money now, and it just doesn't want to stick by the Paris Club's rules. In other words, it doesn't want to stick by America's rules. And what does that mean in practice? So, more countries have been left with bigger debt stacks that they just can't shake. They just can't write these debts down because China won't agree to and international cooperation is completely stuck up. And what that means is that the IMF can't do its job because the IMF only lends to countries in which it thinks that their debts are sustainable and it will eventually get paid back. Because the IMF doesn't lend to pay China back, the IMF lends to fix economies and help them with their balance of payments problems. So all that money that the IMF would be lending is just sitting there. That's got to have real effects on the ground for the countries that need it. Absolutely. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a really big fundraising drive. It's managed to get only $51 billion 
out the door on the other side. That causes real problems for the countries on the ground. There are currently 21 countries in default or looking for a restructuring. They range all the way from Lebanon, that has been stuck in default for the better part of three years now, to Ethiopia, to Venezuela. Being left in default is disastrous for an economy. They're left in a state of permanent limbo. They have no foreign reserves, massively indebted. Inflation can often rise, foreign capital flees. It's a really bad place to be. One of the things that was meant to solve the problem of Chinese creditors being totally intransigent and not sticking by the West's rules was an idea called the Common Framework. And the Common Framework, very broadly speaking, was meant to create a new club of creditors, of international actors, that included China. So the idea was that China, along with America and everyone else, could come up with their own rules. We're now three years in. It just doesn't look like it's happened, unfortunately. One great example of that is Ethiopia. Ethiopia asked for a restructuring deal, so it asked to write down its debts under the Common Framework in 2021. Two years later, there's been almost no movement, no meetings of its creditors, and absolutely no IMF funds. So you describe this problem where the IMF is sitting on a giant pile of cash that it's not actually dispersing, yet at the same time we've talked on the show a a lot of times about some pretty dysfunctional economies that keep seeming to get IMF bailouts. There's a group of middle-income countries, people call them everything from the usual offenders to the old regulars to the joke economies, Uh, Argentina, Egypt, Pakistan. And these are the countries that the fund just can't quite seem to stay away from. There's lots of reasons for that. They range from America's geopolitical interest to the fund's economists just not wanting to abandon countries that they have put a lot of time and effort into reforming. But some countries really have taken the fund for a ride. The IMF requires all of the economies that it lends to to go through conditions. These are macroeconomic reforms, and the idea is that if a country successfully implements these, then it can get its economy back on its feet and it will no longer need the IMF. If it doesn't implement them, then theoretically, the IMF should stop lending. Thus far, Argentina has been fudging its reserve targets for its IMF bailout that was granted both last year and in 2018. But for some reason, the fund just carries on lending. We see that pattern replicated again in Pakistan, has been under some form of IMF patronage for 14 years. It's failed to pay back three of those loans, and it hasn't completed one set of conditions. It's trying to get another $1.1 from the fund, but the fund is dragging its feet. At the same time, China has lent $4 billion. Because of their poor track record... The IMF is uneager to lend too much to these countries, but it feels like it has to lend just a bit, just enough to keep it engaged. But unfortunately, that can often play out as having the worst of both worlds rather than the best of both worlds, because what you end up with is these deals and a large amount of money on the table from years of previous lending in Argentina, Pakistan and Egypt. But because the fund is not stumping up the cash now, it actually doesn't have the leverage to get Pakistan's politicians or Egypt's politicians to listen to it. So it sounds as if the the money that the IMF is getting out the door isn't the best spent. I mean, what does the, the future of the IMF look like to you? Well, that depends who you ask. If you ask the fund's leadership, the future is bright and it looks surprisingly like the World Bank. Traditionally, the IMF looks after short-term macroeconomic stability in the world economy and then the World Bank finances its development. But lately, the fund's leadership have been kind of infringing on the World Bank's turf a little bit. The Resilience and Sustainability Trust is a new facility for climate lending that has a 30-year maturity date on it, which is much larger than anything the fund has going at the moment. It's also dishing out loans for long-term health policies, which would usually be in the 
World Bank's remit and for food shortages, another thing that the bank usually does. The problem is, is that the fund just doesn't have the staff to sustain these kind of programs. Its economists are used to deriving conditions like Argentina and Pakistan keep on flouting, exchange reserves, fiscal stuff. Realistically, the future for the fund probably looks smaller whichever way it goes. It lost the trust of a lot of emerging economies like Brazil and Thailand and India in the 80s and 90s. They built up massive reserves of cash and swap lines between one another, so they don't need the IMF as much as they once did. And as more economies develop, more are getting domestic capital markets, which means there's capital that the government can borrow from that's denominated in their own local currency rather than in dollars. That's something that when it goes bad, the IMF can't really intervene to restructure. And crucially, when these governments are looking for emergency loans, they no longer look to the IMF. They look to their own banks. So you're painting a picture in which the IMF has essentially become irrelevant. Do you agree with that view? Is there a way that it could get back on track? The fund faces a choice. It can continue into struggling every day to get each tranche of loans through as it currently is, but that would be a path into irrelevance. Or it can choose to do something called lending into arrears. The idea goes like this. The IMF could make borrowers suspend payments to Chinese creditors that don't support the debt write-downs. And what that would then do is enable it to lend for the duration of the program and also encourage other creditors like America into writing down their own debts. That would be a smaller IMF and it would be much more Western-focused. Something has to give, though, whether it's that Beijing gets more cooperative or that the IMF gets tougher on Beijing. It's a really difficult choice. But unless the IMF chooses one of those, it will leave poor countries in serious trouble. Karen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. And that was because Argentina has been enduring a terrible drought. 
Mr. Elizalde only got about half the usual rainfall. Terminamos con una lluvia de 520 milímetros, cuando lo normal en esta zona es de 1050 milímetros de lluvia. The drought is probably not directly caused by climate change. It's probably just natural variation in the weather. But the very high temperatures which accompanied it probably were caused by climate change, and they've made it much worse for farmers. Across Latin America, this is a common story. Climate change is making it harder for farmers to grow crops. Which presumably is a problem not just for those farmers. It's a problem in two ways. Firstly, it's a big problem for the farmers, particularly the poor ones who find it very hard to adapt to climate change. But it's also a problem for the global food supply. Countries in, in Latin America, particularly Brazil and Argentina, are among the biggest exporters of grains and soybeans and meat. So let's try to quantify the, the strain, the risk here. How much less food are we talking about? It is difficult to, to predict the effects of something as complicated as climate change on farm yields. But what we're seeing is hotter and drier weather, particularly in the places that are already hot and dry. And the best models that we have, so there's one by the Inter-American Development Bank, which reckons that by 2050, growth in the whole region's agricultural output will be about five percentage points lower than it would have been without climate change. That's the big difference. And that headline number masks very wide variation, not just by geography, but also by crop. Maize, which is very heat sensitive, is going to be much harder to grow. Soybeans are hardier, they're more, more heat tolerant, and they may in parts of Latin America actually do better because of climate change. So a lot of factors going on here, but both with the, the, the changes in weather, but also different crops behaving differently, different regions have different climate. What's the sort of headline by country? Which countries are, are set to be hardest hit? The countries that are going to be hardest hit, we're talking the Andean countries, where it's quite arid, and the hottest countries, so closer to the equator, Mexico, Central America. My colleague Sarah Burke spoke with a farmer in Honduras who said that the seasons are getting more and more unpredictable. You take a place like Honduras, the maize yields are expected to be about 9% lower in 2050 than they would have been without climate change. That's a very big problem for a country where a very high proportion of people there live by subsistence farming. For people in the cities who like to eat corn tortillas three times a day at the moment, if the price of those things goes up, that's going to be bad for the urban poor as well. In a lot of the conversations we have on the show about climate change, the word adaptation comes up. Is, is there much room for that in, in this region? Adaptation is going to be essential. There are various things that small farmers can do. One important thing is to irrigate. Rather than just relying on the rains, which are becoming less reliable, they can try to grow different crops, ones that are more heat-tolerant, possibly even higher-value crops like berries in instead of maize, and hope to make the same amount of money even when the land is worse. Those who can't adapt while farming will have to either switch jobs or move. And what about the flip side of this question, the places where things might perhaps get easier with climate change? In the southern cone, so the area that sort of Argentina, 
Chile, bits of Paraguay and Uruguay, where you're seeing probably more rain, or you may find that it actually gets slightly easier to grow some crops there. But despite this, when I visited farmers like uh, Mr. Elizalde, they were not happy at all. And why is that? Firstly, in the short term, they're in the middle of a drought and it's making their life really hard. Secondly, Argentina, despite having the greatest agricultural potential of probably any country in Latin America, has the craziest farm policies. Farmers face enormous export taxes, which are bad enough, but also they face an insane currency system that the government has multiple different exchange rates for the United States dollar, depending on what you're selling. You've got the the basic official rate, which means if you're an exporter, the government confiscates half of your hard currency. This causes a lot of farmers to say, well, you know, you're going to have to devalue at some point because inflation's over 100%. So they hang on to their crops and then the government will come up with these special exchange rates where they'll say, okay, we're going to give you, if for soybeans an exchange rate that is not quite as terrible as the official rate in the hope that farmers would export and then give hard currency to the government, which it desperately needs to pay its bills. So they did that last year, and they said it would only last for a month for soybeans. It worked for a month, and then the government ran out of money again, and they had to repeat it. With something like climate change, you need to be able to plan for the long term. But the farmers were telling me it is impossible to plan for the long term because you don't know what the government's policies are going to be next week. There's one other country in in Latin America that matters enormously to how Latin American farming copes with with climate change. Uh, And it's also a place where government policy makes an enormous difference. And that's Brazil. So how does Brazil fit into this rich tapestry? The big wild card in Brazil is the Amazon. And the chopping down of the Amazon rainforest is driven largely by farming. Cutting down those trees, not only does it contribute to global warming by emitting carbon dioxide, it also directly affects the weather because each of those trees puffs out large quantities of water which is recycled as rain. And that nourishes not only the forest itself, but also farmland hundreds of miles away from the forest. If too many trees get broken down, there's a danger that the Amazon hits the tipping point. Large parts of it turn to savannah, and then the service that it provides of giving extra rain to all the areas around, that goes away. And suddenly, Latin American farmers are in a much worse position. And how quickly the Amazon is being chopped down depends to a large degree on government policy. Under the previous Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, there was no effort whatsoever made to curb deforestation, and it accelerated. Under the new president, they're trying very hard to slow deforestation. And so what do these two countries, Argentina and Brazil, need to do to stop the situation getting worse? Argentina could adopt sensible farm policies really quickly, and it would have a very big effect. For Brazil, it's much more... Uh, racing against the clock. Ending deforestation is really difficult because the people with the chainsaws don't want to be stopped. So the question is, even if Brazil does have better policies now, are they going to be in time? Thanks very much for your time, Robert. Jason, thanks very much.
Imagine the co-worker in the cubicle next to where you sit. Let's call him Jason. Andrew Palmer writes Bartleby, our column on the world of work and management. Jason's been hosting your company's podcast for about five years. He's got a great voice, very, very charismatic. He's excellent at conducting interviews with his colleagues, but he's also a bit of a nightmare for his producers. Ugh, again, it, it wasn't that I didn't want brown M&Ms. I wanted only brown M&Ms. I ask you for cold water and you've brought me room temperature water. What, what do you mean you don't like my suggestion for the show title? Ugh. Pearls before swine, honestly. The trouble is Jason is so good at his job that he's become indispensable. The news podcast just won't make it out on time with him not being there. So Jason has started to become every manager's worst nightmare. He is a talented jerk. This sounds like a, a fascinating, possibly misunderstood colleague. Tell me more about the, the, this talented jerk category. It's a category that's been around for a while. There are management books written about it, titles like The no Asshole Rule and Jerks at Work. And the idea is that this is someone who is really good at their job, but is so unpleasant that he makes the people around him miserable. And Talented Jerk is not the only title that this this unfortunate character carries. He's also known as the Toxic Rockstar. It is normally a he, by the way. The Destructive Hero or the Brilliant Jerk. And some firms have very explicit rules against them. So Netflix's hiring page says, on our dream team, there are no brilliant jerks. There's a financial services firm called Baird that says it operates a no assholes policy, and so on and so forth. So companies have zeroed in on this character, and they are very clear that they don't want him on board. That said, companies may want to think a little before they put in place a blanket ban. But why? Why you put up with all of the jerkiness? Why, why not ban them? Talented jerks are problematic. Incivility is the kind of thing that can be contagious. It can spread through a culture. It can be very unpleasant. And that can have effects on things like retention, recruitment, reputation, and performance. There's also the idea that in getting rid of a talented jerk, you are getting rid of the next Steve Jobs is just so unlikely as to not really warrant thinking about the person in your office who you think of as a jerk is not going to be the next Steve Jobs, almost certainly. The trouble is that having a no-tolerance policy for jerks has its risk. So it's not to defend jerks, it's just that banning them is the problem. Okay, so what are the risks of a ban? One risk is that the definition of a jerk is very subjective. Some people may feel that they are simply demanding high standards. In the eyes of someone else, they're being intimidating. So you might think that you're being very candid in your feedback, but the person hearing it may think you're just being crushing. Defining jerkiness is very, very difficult, particularly if it's a boss who themselves is a jerk, defining what that is. So you might think that you're doing something supportive. Actually, what you're doing is opening the door as a manager to lots of accusations of jerk craft. It's a kind of corporate Salem. And I guess, as you say, not only a matter of perceptions, but also of degree, there are levels of jerkosity. There are indeed, yeah. So some people are just deeply unpleasant, full stop. Most people don't fall into that category. Most people are kind of have a bit of a jerk quality to them sometimes. That opens the door to jerkiness being manageable. So some jerks may not realise that they're jerks. They may just be oblivious to it. They just need to be told that the way that they behave is unpleasant and they can adjust their behaviour accordingly. 
Others are situational jerks. So they're perfectly pleasant most of the time. You put them in a certain position and suddenly they are less enjoyable to be around. That might be, you know, high-stress situations like presentations, or it might be managing a team of people that brings out the worst in them. So it's possible in those circumstances to construct the job slightly differently. Don't put them in positions of power. Keep them out of the situations that make them feel stressed, and the jerkiness will disappear. So in a lot of cases, there is a way to sort of manage around the jerkiness. Why, why is it that the, the, the jerk in particular has come in for all of this scrutiny from the management types? Yeah, that's a good question, because there are, there are lots of really useless archetypes in offices. So the talented jerk might feel hard done by just on the basis of consistency alone. There are lots of kind of unproductive workers. Why just pick on the talented jerk? You might also want to single out people who think that they're being incredibly constructive, but in offering criticism, basically make sure that nothing ever gets done. And then there are people whose insights are blindingly brilliant, but completely impractical. And most destructively of all, there are nice underperformers. So this is the sort of the inverse of the talented jerk. People who are really quite pleasant to be around, but aren't very good at their job. And that, to me, seems like the bigger problem within most companies. They're more likely to do harm to the bottom line. So perhaps the real problem here is the nice underperformer and helping bosses to figure out what to do about that lump of people is what all those management books should be about. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in. We've got a deal going on at the moment for a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.